0: Well, it's hard to believe I've already done a dozen of these, Uh, it's flown by, and I'm back onto the motorbike riders now, so sat with me is a man with five names, Chaz, Richard Page Davies Roberts, got that right, didn't I? Thanks for that, (laughs) Norge, um, yeah,
1: you did get it right, well done, you've listened well at my wedding in uh 2017 where that was uh yeah a lot of people found that quite amusing but um should probably explain norge as well because i think i'm gonna call you norge quite a lot during this podcast and that's a good call um I, I haven't i don't think your brother's even touched on it during their podcast so no maybe before i completely confuse whoever's listening to this and maybe you should fill in everybody in into to uh why norge yeah
0: yeah it's a nickname People close to me uh, call me, really. It's one that I was given when I was uh, just a kid. I don't remember it, but I was trying to say the name George. And as elder brothers do, they picked up on I was saying Norge. And it stuck from that day. So that's <laughs> it. I've got Norge. So we've known each other for so long that that's what you grew up knowing me as.
1: Yeah, I can't think. I don't think I ever call you Eugene these days. It's always Norge. So, yeah, that's uh, maybe just from growing up in the paddocks with your with your Brothers and family, and you know, the 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 ex, extensive lavity family.
0: Everybody's like a lot of people calling you Nord, so yeah, yeah. Well, this is the, the first episode that I've done with a, a rival friend and rival, so it's um, gonna be interesting to see if you give much away here. <laughs> gonna give away the tricks Oof. of the trade, I'm gonna delve into your psyche. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what have you got behind that cool uh, facade that you put on? Um, looking at this year, we'll say. Current then, um, you've had a rough old start to the year, but then came good. And I'd say that win at Philip, not Philip Island, I was about to say Philip Island, the win at the <laughs> Seca. Didn't win at Philip Island. we cracked the to top ten there, but that was a tough old start. But looking at the mid season then, that must have been nice to get the first win. and I couldn't believe it had been as long as that. You hadn't won in in twelve months, and I didn't realize that until uh, you said that after Laguna Seca.
1: Yeah, definitely it was. I think it was actually close to like eighteen months by the end, and it really? definitely it felt all of that as well. Um, so yeah, it was a long dry spell. Um, yeah, probably the longest I think I've had since beginning the superbike career. You know, even as a rookie, it didn't take that long. So, yeah, it was definitely um, been a rough, rough start to the year. But it, you know how it is when you are off the back of. Uh, a lot of bad races, you know, it makes the, the good races make it taste even sweeter. So, yeah, it was good. I think we're on the right track now. So, um, yeah, it's actually just finding my feet with it. There's people, I think, from the outside that sometimes a just a bike change, you know, it's the same manufacturer. Everybody thinks that it should just be an automatic. You know, it should just be better on, on paper. But that's the great thing about motorbike racing, isn't it? Nothing's on paper. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been a struggle for me. But
0: I feel like we're getting there now, so that's the main thing. You can see you've got a hell of a support network there you've been with the what is the field racing team for so long so a lot of people won't realize that your factory ducati team did go with a bmw for a little bit in 2013 yeah. so you've been with that team at bmw and then since 2014 with ducati and you can see whenever you want at the gunaseca uh serafino 40 uh he's he is <laughs> a big part of field racing yeah and uh, you can see he was just so ecstatic to see Chaz's back yeah, definitely. I feel like you know those guys. It's a
1: bit of a cliche, but it it is like a family team, um, and a lot of people don't realize. Like you just touched on, there is that. Feel racing is a group that kind of run the whole operations behind the Ducati brand, so they take care of all the logistics side and the front things that you don't see on TV like hospitality and everything like that. And that group of people are the ones that you know they've always got my back, thick and thick and thin. Uh, and Serafino, I think, is at the the forefront of that. So, as as much as I'm happy for myself, I think you know a big part of of getting the success is is uh, for them guys as well. It's just you know so rewarding to see them you know as happy as what I am, and you know they really feel it when I'm having bad results as well. Then they you know really feel that the the pain because they know that especially at the only part of the season that you know the potential is better than that. But we were just a little bit lost, so
0: no, it's I've uh, got a good, good group there, a very good group. Yeah, I think Kevin uh, got it. Foddy in there, who's a, a former Grand Prix rider yeah. as well, and he understands it, because people do often just look in, um, black and white, and seeing you know, whenever a new uh, guy comes in like Alvaro Bautista on the same bike and just wins so many races, at uh, the beginning of the season, there may be a lot of teams that would just look at the results and go, oh, that's it, but. Serafino and those guys they didn't give up and they keep digging
1: yeah exactly Serafino you know he gets it he's been in that situation before he knows when things are going right how it clicks and he knows when things are going wrong what's not working so um you know the best I think one of Serafino's best quotes is always show me the feeling on the data yeah and that's the that's the one channel that you can't see and it's the most important one I think um and you you have to have that feeling with the bike it's not just about just because it works for one guy it's not a copy and paste to to his teammate or even to other guys on the same bike like with yourself this year you're on you know you've got the same badge but we know that the bike is completely different to ours and um you know it's just it's motorbike racing like i said it's just it's just so complicated and i think a lot of that never comes across you know when people tune in on a sunday afternoon it's you know all all the intricacies of the sport it never comes across, but um, yeah, it's what makes it such
0: a challenge and rewarding thing at the same time. Well, that's one thing that we're going to mention probably later on in the podcast because you and I were both in the 250 Grand Prix riding on Aprilia's yep. with that Aprilia badge and there was Aprilia's winning the races, but we weren't on the same bikes and that's something that we're going to touch on, but we'll go right back to, to the start then where it all began in uh, in Wales and you grew up on a, on a karting circuit and so... Yes, oh. I know that you had a huge accident whenever you were karting uh, as a, a kid. Um, that must have been uh, pretty scary for your parents to, on a kart track, your kid has a spin and almost wrecks himself. Yeah, yeah. So
1: that was I think the you know, the introduction in the world of motorsport really. So my parents, um, they, they just to give a full background to the story, they they um, bought this patch of land in on the Welsh borders um, and. It was my dad's dream to sort of build a go-kart circuit. And you know, my, my dad's that sort of a person where, you know, if, he, if he, he doesn't even have to really believe in something, but if he wants to do it, he'll do it. And I think it was part of his dream, you know, he thought like a, a go-kart circuit, and whether it's a great business idea or not, he just wants a go-kart circuit. And he did everything he could to make that happen. So it started off as a go, as a dirt circuit, and then they earned enough money off that to be able to to uh, buy Twenty-two or twenty-three thousand breeze blocks, like building blocks, wow. which my dad laid by hand, and he wonders why he's got a bad back. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then you know that that lasted till they started to crumble from a few years of wear and tear, and then, but managed to sort of uh, afford off the back of that, then afford to be able to put tarmac down, and then you know so on. So yeah, my parents gave me a great start on uh, in on go kart circuit, literally outside my bedroom window. So um and yeah the 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 natural thing for me to begin with was uh was four wheels we started and in four wheels with with no real target in mind just you know joining on the racing on a sunday and i did have a massive accident when i was seven um i don't i vaguely remember what happened don't actually remember the details of the crash but i flipped over um the, the car came over and I was really skinny and scrawny back then. Um, Nothing's changed. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm super buff. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I was, you know, really had nothing to me was skin and bone back then um, and landed on my chest. And I think, you know, having, having nothing there to sort of protect you, it was just full impact. And that, the, the force literally blew my lungs apart. Um, and one lung was heavily punctured and the other lung was severed. Um, and broke ribs obviously from the impact and uh, so it was a massive chest trauma and um, uh, <laughs> I, I remember this part very well because I, I remember trying to get back up after the crash and obviously was collapsed again, straight back down uh, was coughing blood immediately and then um, my dad and a few people uh, who were at the kart circuit on on it was a Sunday and... Um, who were actually driving that day. They came down on the quad bike, put me on it, went into the house, had me on my back. And you know, dad being dad is like, oh, call the doctors, get him to the doctor, he'll be all right. <laughs> Mum's like, no, Peter, no, he's going to the hospital. Um, and yeah, luckily that was the right call because they threw, um, and actually really unluckily at the same time, the, um, the air ambulance was out at that time. It was on another call and it was getting quite touch and go for me. So they, they took me to Hereford Hospital um, and got me in there. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Um, so I got transferred as fast as an ambulance can go from Hereford to Birmingham. I think they did it that day um, and got me in there. And I, I remember really well that there was a, I went inside and there was a German, German doctor and he was literally there as the double door swung open at the back of the ambulance. And apparently I was going blue at this point. Um, the double door swung open, and he was there, ready with the scissors and all the all the kit that needed to cut me open. And so, yeah, they got. Luckily, they got to the the bottom of the problem. They they knew they were being specialists for that kind of trauma in Birmingham. They knew what was what was going on with me from the symptoms, um, and they got to it. And uh, yeah, it was you know really one of those things which could have been really really different. So.
0: After that, made the really wise decision to go to two wheels. <laughs> I was just thinking that it's like God, you know that carton Corianna is just too dangerous. Let's try motorbike. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit safer. Yeah, I don't know where the logic in in that is, but probably your dad's idea, probably Pete's idea. I can just imagine Pete just uh, smoking on Marlboro or something and said, "All right, boys, them four wheels, too too many." Yeah, stay away from them things. <laughs> no, yeah. So from that, that was
1: age seven, um, and then something you know, a bit peculiar, uh, about that is that it was 20, I want to say 23 years to the day of that accident. Um, which was, I think it was October 3rd or something like that, maybe late September. I can't exactly remember, but it was 23 days to the, the day that I won the World Super Sport Championship in 2011. So oh. my mum that day, she was in Magmi Corps in 2011 and, uh, you know, you can imagine being a mum in that situation when, um, knowing what's happened, she didn't mention anything to anybody. Should so, she remembered the dip she, remem- she remembers it every year and reminds me. Um, and yeah, the race, Sunday of Magna 2011, race day, to, with the possibility to wrap up the World Championship, was 23 years to the day of that accident. So, you can imagine what was going through her head, but yeah, going back, it was from there, we went into bikes and you know, again just a progression got back healthy again after four weeks in hospital i think um and then yeah we had a we had uh, some mini motos turn up to my dad's car track and you know, he's been a he's a petrol head but his passion's two wheels so that was that was what kicked things off
0: did pete actually compete himself uh, when he was younger
1: yeah yeah so he used to uh, used to compete um, you know, on national level and he, I think he went to the Northwest 200 once had a massive crash and came back home um, but yeah he. it was for him it was passion from when he was younger he wasn't pushed into it his parents you know, had no no uh, sort of inkling for, for bike racing at all or knew anything about it but he just got into it for whatever reason I'm not actually sure of why why he did but he's It's he's been just massively into motor, motorcycle racing and loved it growing up and that was his thing you know he'd, he'd have loved to have made a, a career out of it himself but um, you know, I always hear stories from my my granddad and grandma when they were alive of how they would go and try and put my dad's clothes back in his drawers and it would just be full of engine parts which were leaking through all the way through his clothes and you know, there'd be a police come and knock at the door and be like oh Pete's wrapped himself around a lamppost and he's alright or Pete's ridden through a gate and you know so on and so forth that was the, the the guy that he was back in the in the day he had a reputation in the local town but you know that was where we got the start so myself and and my sister as well who we used to race Minimoto back in the day so we the, got the first world now.
0: champion in your household <laughs> yeah. was actually your sister then <laughs> yeah. Jody. Well this is this <laughs> is a <the> story she <laughs> likes to tell. So for yeah. listeners that they don't know that uh, your sister Jody is married to, to my brother Michael. So yeah. the amount of times that poor Michael had to listen to that over the past ten, fifteen years was you know, I was world champion when I was a kid. Yeah, it's uh you know, she's not
1: shy in reminding everybody about that. It's um oh, to be fair to her, she got the world championship. So we had Minimoto came to came to us and um we, we uh, kind of took it on as a family and started doing this, the Mini Moto Championship in, in the UK and, and really got involved with it. So I was um, it, there wasn't anything that was like, "Oh, let's attack this like it can be a career for you and whatever. It was just as a family, we live on a car track, let's go racing on the weekends. This is a good thing to do as a family and a good thing f- for kids to focus on. Um, my mum did the timekeeping for the championship and me and my sister and my dad raced the guy that Mick the works at the co track he raced so it was like a big entourage and um, yeah throughout the years the British Championships and everything they used to have one event every year the world championship which sometimes was in Italy and then other times in the UK and I think maybe other places as well but um, yeah Jody. It came to our house one year and my sister Jodie, she, uh, she turned it on one year in the wet <laughs> and got the World
0: Championship plate. So yeah, that's uh, a little known story, which is, is quite cool. Um, but she uh, was riding in the wet at the same pace as what she'd been doing in the dry. Yeah, that you was reckon? the
1: amazing thing. She was you know, she was super smooth all the time, and, but she would literally go around the track in the same speed as the, in the wet as she would in the dry. and it, it uh, She was good, good, good in the dry as well, but you know in the wet... That sort of uh, feel and and talent you know i've seen it before as well with with girls in the wet they can they just you know they've got something different to what we do. We try and force everything um being, being men, but the girls just can relax with it and they they've got that from a young age, and they know like it just comes a lot more natural to them I think than what it what it does to us. I have to tell ourselves to be smooth and for yeah. them it's you know, what I saw growing up was was like that, so yeah, it was um a lot of fun. Back then we had a lot of fun doing the British
0: Minimoto Championship. It was cool. Yeah, I like the attitude that your your dad had and now Pete's the fact that he just went and was like, I want a kart track so they went and laid it down block by block. It wasn't like Drawn up this business structure let's try and get fun behind it how's this going to work are we going to make ends meet you know profit loss. <laughs> what's the overheads here yeah. i want a cart track i'm going to lay down some breeze blocks and make it work and it did become uh, a successful family business and it sounds the same as your racing career you did it it's something that you wanted to, to do your dad wanted to you to get into riding bikes for fun and um you don't think at that stage any further than that one day to the next and yeah. that's that's the way it should be
1: yeah definitely that the thing as well with with mum and dad they they literally didn't have any money to build a cart track. Dad bought this. It was a cow shed at the time, and he converted it bit by bit while we lived in a caravan. And the carts were run, running around, so that was earning the money just to pay bit by bit to be be able to do to do the house up. So we had a roof over our heads. You know, I didn't have we didn't have electricity till we were. I want to say eleven, something like that. It was a generator. Every morning we would go outside, switch the generator on. We would have to turn it off late at night. No it was way. that sort of. Uh, that's how we grew up. To us, electric was such a luxury. When we had it installed, um, you know, just coming towards the teenage years, it was like wow! I can just flick the switch on and we've got we've got lights <laughs> or the TV just goes on. We don't have to go and switch the generator on. And, and that was my mine and my sister's job. We'd make
0: the the. The breakfast and go and turn the generator on in the morning so we can get the house. So household. that was so before school and you would do that every morning, waking up before school, go out turn the generator on, yeah. just running the mill. Yeah is what you do? Yeah,
1: every morning, yeah. And there used to be a knack to it as well because obviously it's not a state of the art generator. It was one of the the trusty old diesel engines from probably, I don't know, seventies, I'm guessing. But, power anything that. Yeah, power anything that. Um and yeah, so it was there was a system to it and you know in a cold winter morning more often than not it would take a bit of getting going but it was a lot of good memories of, you know, looking back on, on it and how the track, you know, I'm really sort of proud of my parents in, in that way to be, to, to go about how, or how they went about it. I'm not sure in the same situation now that I would do the same. It's just a roll of the dice. Seems to me now like it's a complete roll of the dice. They don't know how it's going to work or if it's going to work or whatever, but everything was a roll of the dice for a lot of years and... And they got by and made a good business out of it and, and managed to, to put me into such a situation where I am today. So, it's yeah, it's quite quite an amazing thing to do, really, when you think of it.
0: Yeah, and where the, you guys uh, grew up, where the cart track is and your home is, it's not exactly, um, in the, you know, there's not a city on the doorstep. It's no. a long way out of the way. I remember whenever I would go and visit whenever we were teenagers and there was no phone signal for maybe 10-15 <laughs> minutes around and I, I kind of liked it at that stage because was, we were just getting mobile phones and yeah. then you go and stay with Chaz and it was just peace because your mum couldn't contact you and all we did was just go out in the kart track on mini bikes and all the rest and nobody could get hold of you so the fact that uh, you guys made it work with a great kart facility there and people came and you actually got a world championship to that track Yeah, yeah it's, uh it's pretty impressive yeah, the phone signal thing. It was one of those things back in the day where, like, God, I, you
1: know, I don't want to walk up the field to go and make a phone call or not that you're doing much phone call, uh, much calling, sort of age, twelve. But it's one of those things where at the time it doesn't seem all that good, but now what I'd give to be somewhere where it doesn't have phone signal. You can just toss the thing in the drawer and forget about it. But yeah, it was. Um, we had a lot of fun there growing up, we had you know, the karting, we had the, the mini-moto and I have a lot of standout memories of, of uh, just little things that happened throughout, the, throughout my childhood at the go-kart circuit. So I remember the first time I actually rode a, a mini-moto there, um, which wasn't my first time on a motorbike because I think I'd ridden a little bit in the garden in our house previous to the, being at the kart track, but I actually really remember riding this mini-bike down the, the back straight at our track. And I was tickling the throttle. It was basically on tick over, and I was going nowhere. And I remember thinking, this thing's so slow. And then I just went from zero to a hundred, a uh, hundred percent throttle, and flipped me straight off the back. <laughs> <laughs> went straight off in in a couple of seconds. So yeah, it was a bit of a harsh reality, but um, yeah, just a lot of good memories and a lot of a lot of good things that happened at that car track, and sort of had a lot of good good times as well, like with yourself coming over with Michael. Um Michael's spent i don't know how many years there now, but he's you know part of our family and yeah a lot of lot of good fun and i I would love to know I wish I'd have kept a log from an early days early days of how how much fuel has been burnt there, how many laps I've done there on bikes on carts. it would be astronomical.
0: I remember going there and I would always borrow a bike As uh, even Casey Stoner, a uh, close friend of yours whenever you were growing up, and remember he used to come and stay at yours, and he had some bikes i I would have borrowed. Casey's bike maybe he didn't even know and borrow some other bikes but every time I would ride somebody's bike a wheel would fall out of it or something would happen where I would destroy it and yeah it got to the point where I was just scared to ride somebody's bike I didn't know what was going to happen next I remember even being up in uh, the forest and one of those uh, mini motocross bikes on my bikes the bike that I was borrowing stopping and a friend of yours took a lighter, a lighter, lighter to yeah. dry the, the air filter <laughs>
1: that was it Remember that You've oh, You got a bit of a reputation around our place. Nobody wants
0: to leave Kit around anymore because you'd be I <laughs> would destroy <laughs> it. no you'll will be wrecking it. Oh I had a bit of a reputation. I remember once coming <laughs> to yours as well and I got a bit of a head cold or something and then I left and just a trail of destruction behind me. I think you, your mum, maybe Jody all get ill for like the next couple of weeks. It was like a quarantine zone. <laughs> so it wasn't just bikes that are wrecked, I wrecked people <laughs> as well. <laughs> I seemed to be a bit of a carrier when it came to colds. I didn't really suffer though. Um, so, your mini motor career, that's where it all started. And then 1999 was whenever you first went on to proper motorbikes as we know them, the Aprilia Super Team Championship. Yeah. And that's when we met more than 10 years ago now. I wasn't racing at that stage, but my brothers Michael and John were racing in the, the British Championship. John yeah. was racing in the Aprilia Super Team Championship with you. And we actually met through um, Craig Jones, God mm-hmm. rest him. That was uh, back then when I. Uh, for some reason I'd met Craig at the start of the year and we bumped into at Snedderton last chicane. Uh, you guys were climbing underneath the grandstand, so what, 11, 12 years old weren't we? Yeah. I remember Craig Jones introducing me, yeah, this is uh, my friend Charles Davies, this is his sister Jodie and hard to believe how far we've come since then. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I was actually hoping you remember this, because I definitely do.
1: Um, I remem- remember Snetton yeah. being under the grandstands, basically treating it as monkey bars, and at that time, I didn't realise that that you were racing at all, um, that you had been racing with motocross. In motocross before that, because I was like, well... I, I remember talking to you and Eamon, and Eamon yeah, has ne- never had an, an interest, yeah, your brother, and... Uh, but Michael and John, it seemed to be like they were the, the the kids that were being pushed the racing way. But I had no idea that you were actually racing. So we used <laughs> to just hang out and I remember it being really early in the morning, be up, going under the grandstands for whatever reason, and uh, yeah, it was um, you know the beginning of it's it's just crazy to think here now twenty years later that you know, we're still competing against each other um, and maintain friendship right? Yeah a lot of different career paths and gone one which
0: way and another and yeah here we are yeah friendships were formed in the most bizarre way so we were so young then I wasn't racing at that stage and didn't really have the intention to go racing I had been racing motocross as a kid like you said Uh, my brothers Michael and John went the road racing route and I didn't really have any hunger for it at that stage because I think I'd been doing it since I was a kid and just kind of expected it and then suddenly for them couple of years I wasn't racing I was just eating Haribo and hanging out with you guys, probably uh, distracting you from the from the racing. Like you oh, said, I would have been. It like, wouldn't have taken
1: much distraction. <laughs> no. I remember that we used to spend a lot of time in your in the Laverty motorhome, and I remember. The old Forda vehicle. Yeah. That, Same motorhome
0: sounds great, doesn't it? Forda vehicle. Yeah, yeah, that's a
1: a bit of a posh way of saying it, isn't it? But it definitely wasn't wasn't anything posh, but. You know, it was such a family effort from your side wasn't it it was well all, all the the family themselves your mum and dad uh brothers and sisters and but also harry your friend and, and philip at the time who's now been your crew chief and this year is working with top rack so yeah it's just such a big collection of people who you was know, still friends with and um yeah we used to have a lot of fun in that in that motorhome like have Haribo parties and <laughs> basically that was the main event to go to go to the cash and carry the week
0: before the race and take some Haribo for the Lavities. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I remember the same when there was the PlayStation <laughs> wired up and it was hanging yeah. out the door into the on and we're playing PlayStation and other guys like Leon Cantmere are around and so many different riders that when we think back to the to that stage, uh, you never would have dreamed that we would go from eating Haribo, playing mm. PlayStation to, to being more championship but... I think that's a big part of why it has happened. So we just were loving racing mm-hmm. and good little network back then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was was um, the the sort of path
1: from... I remember clearly, I was talking about events going back to being at Kinch and being at the car track, but I remember the time where somebody was like pointing at the television. I think it was Rossi and who he was pointing at. It would have been 97, so it would have been my last year Mini Minimoto. And it was kind of like a realisation moment for me because somebody was said... Oh, you you could do this for a living, like this could be your job, and it was that moment where yeah, like, nah, <laughs> don't, be, don't be stupid.
0: This is we're just racing. Like this is this is all we're doing. It's that that is pretty far away. It's a weekend thing. That's all we knew. you Yeah. Did your school during Monday to Friday, and that's what you were studying towards getting a real job, and then Saturday and Sunday was just about racing bikes.
1: Yeah, yeah. You'd never think anything of it, and I think that. In a way, I feel like in you know Spain and Italy, maybe they're such successful nations because maybe that's not in them from, from that early age. I feel like it's a it's a treated as a real business there, and it's possibly a bit more cutthroat than what we've grown up doing, and there, you know, you need to be that serious g- kid who's in the zone at age eight, yeah. and I actually saw that firsthand. You know, going to the Spanish championship quite young of, you know, you don't talk to your competitors and that sort of <laughs> stuff, but. It's just different, isn't it? It's a completely different upbringing. We're there swinging on the monkey, well, on the grandstand monkey bars at Snetterton, and, uh, and then going out to race for an hour late, an hour later, and uh, you know, I, I don't think you know,
0: that's that is the norm in especially in Spain. And a lot of the, the guys that you were racing on the a Super Team Championship at that stage, I w- wasn't a rival years at that stage because I wasn't even racing. But there was also year two thousand. Then Casey Stoner arrived, mm. and he was um, battling with you on track. Uh, also Craig Jones Leon Cambier and so many of the guys and like you said it wasn't like you were you, you were speaking to them off track you were best of friends and then but year 2000 then that, things must have been pretty tough then whenever you were about them with uh, somebody like uh, Casey Stoner you guys uh, he spent a lot of time at, at your place mm. in Wales he was basing himself in um, yeah. Almost eight years, and then you guys were fighting for for a championship at such a young age. Still, a fair little bit of pressure, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think at that point as well, things had got more serious. You sort of realised that we are um, on the path to something at that point, and we're not just going racing for the laugh on the weekend. we you know this is a trying to get somewhere in the sport. So that ninety nine was my first year in the Aprilia Challenge, um, and then two thousand yeah it was the the second year of it, and. It was a natural progression. I wasn't super fast in the beginning, and then sort of picked it up as things went along. Um, and I think I got like super teen of the year in in ninety nine. So then, obviously, the expectations for two thousand were to come in and and fight for the championship between myself, Craig, and uh, little known at the time, Casey, um, and actually on paper, I think it was looking between me and Craig, uh, and I actually I had obviously didn't have any idea about casey coming over didn't know him from adam but i do remember the first test at the beginning of the year i think probably march april something like that um when they had like this this uh, pretty super team test first test or the only test of the year uh, at donington park and I just remember this set of mustard leathers in the distance and more or less, I had the uh, a rough idea of who everybody was. You know, you'd know, you either catch them up. They were newcomers, so you catch them up from maybe I don't know, four or five seconds a lap, or it was maybe Craig, or there was other guys like Rob Butterworth or Paul Veazey, and guys who I grew up racing with, and maybe just hunt them down a little bit, maybe a second a lap, or you kind of knew who the competitors were. But then there was this mustard set of leathers. I was like, well, this guy's not coming very quickly. Who's this guy? <laughs> and... He was coming, but he wasn't coming quick enough right, that's that's I remember clearly thinking like, this guy's new, and he's quite fast and then yeah then I didn't I don't think I actually knew that knew Casey at the time at all. I didn't know who he was or anything like that, but then we did another i think it was another test at Croft just before the start of the season, and by that point you know he was fully up to speed and like oh wow we've got a competitor this year (laughs) we've got somebody who's bringing something else to the table so um yeah it was i think looking back on it we did i remember clearly meeting casey at croft and and being actually just intrigued by this australian guy because australia for a 12 year old is quite far away and we'd never traveled further than tenerife i think as a family so um they they were uh they Had come all this way from Australia, and I just wanted to talk to him. I was just, I had my mind blown that these people had come all the way from Australia, and I was just, you know, full of questions at the time, as you are, and, and not competitive at all, just in, interested. And little did I know that that was the start of a, a big rivalry with Casey that season. It was going down, I think, after Craig crashed in the first few races, or first two out of three races, possibly. Um, it was between myself and Casey who were duking it out the whole season. I won some, he won. He won some, and uh, yeah, came down to the last race, where I was leading the championship going into the last race, and uh, slipped off on a it was a, a half wet, half dry track, and uh, Casey got the championship. So, um, but it's one of those things at the time which means the absolute world to you. It seems like the world's going to end, um, but you know now it's not so uh, not. Such obviously a big deal. It's a a a minor blip in the road, but at the time it is literally everything, and there was tears, and you know we just wanted to to beat Casey uh, to that championship, and anyway it didn't end up happening. But I think that as a rider, even if the championship didn't happen, as a rider, what I gained from that year of of uh, racing against Casey and Craig, you know, Craig was a super super fast rider as well. you know, it was a, a lot of character building, but also, uh, brought me on as a rider. I think, you know, having that mindset of going towards a championship at that age, you know, a championship which ran alongside British championship, you're kind of in the, in the spotlight, um, at the time, you know, as a, as a young, a really young rider, because actually we were between me, Craig, and I think, who was it? I think it was Paul Wheezy. Um,
0: you were only twelve
1: years old. We were twelve, right? yeah. So the first year we were twelve um, in ninety nine, we were twelve because they had given us special dispensation uh, uh, to to race the championship, but only if I think it was Neil Mackenzie, uh, Ron Haslam, and somebody else uh, basically said that we could ride. So yeah. they watched the first test at Donington and and watched us go round, and they gave us the nod. And now knowing, you know, knowing Ron as <laughs> as we do you know, ron if it, if you were eight years old i think ron would give you the nod yeah. but, <laughs> but you know that was i think that was really cool because that just wouldn't happen these days it was sort of like well these kids have maybe got something to to give and um you know let's see what we can do here
0: uh But those, those yeah, bikes uh, were pretty big so if you were 11 years old when you first rode it I remember Craig Jones was really short, so Craig couldn't even touch the ground. Yeah. So like you said, that wouldn't happen nowadays. The fact that they give you guys special dispensation yeah. and as a rider that can't even touch the ground, yeah, there's a bike that can do hundreds, hundred and fifty miles per hour is mad.
1: Yeah, it was. It is mad, and they, like you said, they are they were really big bikes and they were heavy. There wasn't a one two five GP bike, which obviously has more power, but. You know, they're they're small things, they're pure race bikes. This was a a street bike, which was like a bit of a tank, and (laughs) there were more crashes in the paddock and the pit lane than there were out in the track, because we couldn't, uh, even myself being quite tall at that time, not very tall, but I couldn't touch the floor on it. I'd have to fully get off one side and to try and get the foot down just to balance myself, and and Craig, he had no chance. Craig was a lot smaller than me, and there was a lot lot of little (laughs) tip-overs in pit lane with this... 150 kilo bike on you so yeah it was um it was a a really good time I think to be to be growing up in, in racing I raced mini bikes against Craig and also a lot of other good riders that maybe didn't go on to to um win championships at British level or world level but I, I feel like I came through a, a time where there was a lot of good riders through Minimoto, through um super team so yeah it was a lot of good memories looking back on that
0: as well shows the pace that you guys had because then in 2001 you did hop up onto the British 125 championship then and you were fast right away and god you were that young then 13 14 Mm. that was super young and already in your first year so I that is when I started racing then in the year 2001 I was racing back in Ireland you'd already uh, been racing a couple of years so I was looking at you you were yeah one or two two years younger than me I think and uh, you were already winning British 125 championship races in 2001 so i knew you were you were on the way to be that young and already to be talked about going to the world championship level well i was looking up to you even <laughs> though uh, we'd been friends for those few years uh, i was looking at what you guys were doing and just thought it was a completely different level and you were in Spain that year as well weren't you there was an academy where you Casey Stoner early on came here if you guys went to, to Spain to try and get British riders onto the world stage.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that was in the end of two thousand. Actually, after the year of Super Teen. I was dabbling with one two five GP bikes that year, just on sort of track days, but not doing any uh, any racing the in one two five British Championship or anything like that. Because for one reason, I was too too young. But um, the Super Super Team was the was the primary focus that year. So, um, but at the end of the year, we. We uh, rented a bike in Spain to go and do the last two rounds of the Spanish Championship. Um, and I didn't qualify for either race. And I remember just feeling so out my depth. It was just unbelievable, unbelievably overwhelming going to Spain. There were, at the time, I think there was something like 60 riders trying to qualify for a 40 rider grid, maybe even more. Um, it was like 35 riders per group. So it was an A group and a B group. And it was just deep. All the riders from Grand Prixs used to use them last two races to uh, to test for the for the next season, and they were factory bikes, and it was just completely mind blowing. Um, you know, you gone from racing at good tracks, even like Donington or Cadwell Park, and not the Cadwell's anything special, but you know, normal British Championship tracks, which are considered normal at that point. But then you go to Harrah's, where it's double the width, and the curbs are completely flat and they are they've got so much grip you can just sling it in on the side of the tire yeah, It's true I remember doing it as well and it was almost like a different discipline it, it felt so different didn't it really just you, you can't explain the, the the step at that time when there was no real homologation either for a curb at that point even a, a curb at Donington even though that was a Grand Prix track was not the same as a curb at Jerez. the the curbs at that time were used you know, every inch of them was used, especially on the
0: 125s, and you know, it was just, like you said, it was completely different discipline, different sport. And it's like somebody so, moved the edge of the track and you had to reprogram your brain, so we knew to stay on the tarmac, yeah. because the curbs might have been lipped up, uh, so you weren't able to use them in the UK, and then suddenly, I remember that as well, now that you say, and then you went to Spain, and these guys see the edge of the track is where the grass starts. Exactly, and yeah. And you had to completely change uh, where you were aiming for.
1: Yeah, it was just... Just a real eye opener to the to the level in Spain as well you know there's not just learning the tracks but I just wasn't ready for it. I was so far off and I think a bit overwhelmed by everything i was there were some names i can't remember exactly who who had come from doing Grand Prix, but you know at that for the five years previous to that, I was watching religiously every grand yeah. Prix uh, every Grand Prix race me and my sister used to do like scrap scrapbooks of the riders and you know, there's guys on that, that uh from that who 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 had come to race the last two rounds of the Spanish Championship and it so was So your
0: heroes are on track with you. Uh
1: yeah, and it was just like, wow, what is what is going on here? And you know, definitely didn't ride very good at all and um and but the idea was behind that was to put myself in a shop window that was a tryout for the kind of the beginning of an academy, so to speak. Um it was The Dorna, Dorna kind of first time that Dorna took any initiative to try and attract riders, or help riders from northern northern Europe, so, you know, Finland with Mickalio or U K with us, and and even yeah like Australia with Casey, and there was, a little bit of a starting to happen where they just realized where it was starting to get dominated by Spanish and Italian, and it wasn't a healthy thing, so, the end of that year was a tryout. With a hope to either get in the Telefonica Movie Star Cup, uh, or the Spanish Championship, for you know the real one two five Spanish Championship the following year, and at the time, Donal will not decided whether the Telefonica Cup was even going to run in two thousand and one or whether it would be uh, a load of bikes sponsored by Telefonica within the Spanish Championship. So, but anyway, it was just a tryout for that. I did terrible, and I was the last slot. Um, to be allocated uh, for two thousand and one, it was there were eight positions available, and in the end, they didn't do the Telefonica Cup. They did, uh, they did the Spanish Championship with just eight bikes, and it was four Spanish guys and four uh, four guys from other nationalities. So there was Casey, uh, Leon Camier, a guy, a Sp- uh, German guy called uh, Yasha Buch, Bush. and the last slot was. Up in the air, and I remember coming home from school every day and you know, going to mum and dad as has Alberto called or yeah. Tony, who was it, that was Alberto Pooch, and uh, his right hand man at the time was a guy called Tony Calvert. Yeah. And And no, 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 and it felt like weeks went by, and it was probably yeah a, f- a couple of weeks, but finally they we got a phone call uh, at home, and and my dad decided to you know, break it to me and a way that probably only he would. He was he was like, what does the man from Del Monte say? And apparently there's an old advert from when he was a kid where the man from Del Monte in Spain, Del Monte orange juice, says yes. <laughs> and I always remember that. I was like, I don't know what the man from Del Monte says. I haven't got a clue. Just tell me, has Alberto called or not? And finally I got that last slot for uh, to, to race in the Spanish championship and it was like, wow, it was... Yeah, you know, this is a big shot. This is a real opportunity here. Uh, but then, knowing what I'd known from doing those last races, I was like, I, I didn't really feel ready for it. You know, yeah. as a kid, you don't say that at the time, but yeah, how I felt was like, I am so far off the pace here. I've not qualified for these two races. I've just turned up for, and that is, firstly, really embarrassing. But I'm not even. I don't really deserve to be on track with these guys, and. Yeah, it was yeah, but an opportunity and you know, a great opportunity now looking back on it and it was like I said the beginning of that dawn of push for to get other nationalities which you know, really really helped me out.
0: Yeah, the, it was something that hadn't happened before, that influx of young riders. So what you guys were doing in Spain was pretty Im- impressive being part of that academy, but it brought your speed on so much that you were a 14-year-old kid yeah. racing uh, maybe not all the rounds in British 125 Championship but I remember you then coming at the end of the year and winning the last round of the British 125 Championship by maybe five seconds and you are beating guys that were in their 30s mm. so that was pretty standout at that age and, and clear to us that you were on the way to, to something special but I bet you didn't even think about that that wasn't on your radar you didn't actually think about I'm the first one to do this at this age this is something a bit, a bit special
1: no definitely not but um, you just never think like that do you well, even you know even now, you never kind of get try to get far too far ahead of yourself and especially at the time you just like really I think at that time I knew that it was a good opportunity and I knew that there was there were the important eyes were on you so it was Dorna with Carmelo at the time especially Alberto and he was the one that you had to please because yeah. Alberto was at the time reporting back to Dorna as he still does
0: Um, but it seemed like uh, at that stage I think things were still quite (laughs) in their early days because from what I remember they'd almost set this mould of what a writer should be and you had to try and fit inside that and if you didn't fit inside that mould then you weren't the, the chosen one definitely yeah there was The year before, there was, uh, I think
1: Danny came through, Pedroza. There was a guy called Raul Jara, or Jara. Um, And there was Juan Olive, who I think went on to win one one, 125 Grand Prix. Um, And they had all been moved up from the Spanish Championship the year before with Alberto into the World Championship. And and Tony Elias, sorry. It was Tony as well. And so it was four guys um, who went on to do good things. And obviously, when you see that as... 14 year old at the time and then you've got this opportunity to ride the same color bike telephonic movie star we've got all the same kit as them and what have you you're just like wow this is this is such a a great opportunity and then I really felt that the eyes of Alberta were were on were on us we knew it was a a fast track to get to to world championship Um, but at the same time it wasn't without uh, a little bit of um, controversy because we turned up to the first test in in early two thousand and one, uh, and this was supposed to be a an academy where, or kind of an academy where, it wasn't about the final result. It was about how you, how you kind of were as a as a person, as a rider, your in your head, uh, how strong you are, but also about how you did compared to the other guys that you're racing against uh, on the same bike. I mean, within the within the Telefonica team, and we turned up eight riders, um, all expecting to. To have the same bike with the same opportunity uh, as the other seven in my case, and it actually we turned up at the first test, and it was quite clear from the beginning that Casey and Julian Simon were the chosen ones because they had shown really, really good speed the year before when they did the, the two wildcards at the end of the year, and they were the chosen ones that, that went directly with the what's called uh, the A Kit Honda, yeah. which was the, the factory or basically last year's factory bike. Um, or close to that as close to that as they could manage and it was up to the the other six of us to to duke it out and like i said it wasn't about you know we were never going to get on the podium because we turned up to the first races with a completely standard bike which a completely standard 125 is an incredibly standard bit of kit it doesn't come with an airbox which was at the time it never came with an airbox which is just you know the the most basic of basics but it was just about what you could show at the track and
0: and how you could stack up to the other guys. and uh, Little did you know at that stage, it's funny that you say that because then <laughs> that was something that was to carry on for the next six years of your career, I would say, <laughs> because in our sport, you've got uh, a ferrin that's painted in the Telefonica movie Star Colours that year and the bike uh, to... Mm-hmm. You know, to the untrained eye would have thought that your bike was the same as uh, the other guys that were part of the academy but they had a, a trick bit of kit underneath them capable mm-hmm. of winning and you had what was a, a stock bike but they looked exactly the same mm-hmm. and that is something in our sport it just really bugs me
1: yeah yeah definitely like looking back on it now i think as as a rider it didn't do me any harm at all riding an in inferior bit of kit in from day one doesn't really hurt because you're still riding as hard as you can and whether that's for first or tenth if you're riding as good as you can and learning from the guys who were faster than me at the time um i think that was it was it was probably the the right way to go about it but we just didn't expect those other those two guys to get a better bit of kit but what i think the 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 thing at the time that that does is it it kind of you you never get in the right situation from the from the first day. So from that you've got to try and get on the best seat you can then in, in Grand Prix's. And then so on. And it goes through the years. And, and it's hard to... It, I feel like if you don't get the opportunity straight out of the blocks. As a, as a British person especially. Then it's pretty hard to, to really make it happen. And it can be I think even still quite true to this day. But, um, but it was still a massive learning experience. And I remember there's certain standouts from the year. I remember racing at Jarama in Madrid and Alberto was there and we were, actually Tony Elias turned up and he was giving us some pointers. And it was, uh, at at the time it was, Alberto was saying to us, well, you know, you've just got to show me, show us your best. And Alberto's, you know, he was a hard man then and he was a hard man and he's still (laughs) a hard man now. And I remember saying to him at, at Harama, I said, oh, what do you think is a good lap time for this bike? What should this bike be able to do? And he wouldn't give me an answer. He said, oh, I'll I tell you tomorrow. And I think this was maybe round three or something like that. So I found my feet and I'd learned a lot in a short space of time. And I was fighting for points in the Spanish Championship, which just six months prior to that, then the last couple of races in 2000 seemed like an absolute mile away. So we, um, at Harama, Alberto said that. And he said, "Oh, I t- I'll tell you tomorrow. Um, so then we did, I think it was practice and qualifying. And I, I remember it went particularly well for for myself, and I think this is about the highest compliment that you'll ever get from Alberto. Is, <laughs> he said, "But for you, is this is safe? You can you can race like this." And I was like, "Yeah, I think so. I can I th- I think I can race like that." And that's that's a that from Alberto is you've done good. You've done incredibly good, and I think even now I think that'll be hard to get that out of him. But I knew at that point that we were doing okay like we were starting to he he was starting to maybe see something in 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 myself and um, and I think that went a long way with him as well that we were we, we pushed uh, uh, pushed through the season and always gave the best and that opened up a uh, an opportunity for me then in Grand Prix the following year and ultimately that did come down to Alberto's word within
0: within Dorna, so it was just he ate so much uh, power didn't he then to to control yeah. riders and uh, select which team they're going to to go into
1: yeah yeah definitely i think you know, he still has that power obviously he's in a really powerful position now and was i think he's Donna must trust a lot in his word alberto he's brought a lot of good kids through and you know i think apparently there's a story with Danny Pedroza that apparently Danny was one of the slowest at the tryouts for the Telefónica Cup but Alberto saw something in him yeah and and obviously Danny went on to have this amazing career, but he saw something in him as a person, I think, and a, and a determined kid. And you know, I think, I'd like to think that he maybe saw something in me back in 2001 as well, that even I think the best result of the year was maybe an eighth at Harama, I think. Yeah. Um, ironically, battling with Bautista. <laughs> I remember that pretty well. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, he opened up definitely opened up that door for me in in
0: 2001 as a to get started in grand prix so and you went as a 15 year old traveling the world then we'll do five uh world championship and had you ever been outside of europe before <laughs> no so that was it just straight in the racing bikes traveling the world and at least did they allow you your dad pizza to, to travel with you or were they quite strict on on parents involvement
1: no they were that was okay my dad traveled me to every race that season um so yeah off the back of 2000 into 2001 uh, sorry off the back of 2001 in the Spanish championship into 2002 yeah. it came together quite late I remember the the deal in Grand Prix but it was like I felt at the end of uh, at the end of 2000 being overwhelmed by what this opportunity meant um, to go into world championship but it was like that double it was it was twofold and I remember just being like we're going to Grand Prix and I'm riding this Aprilia where uh, we went to the factory, went to Noale to look at the bike. And my dad ran me on Aprilia's in British championship, as you'll remember. Yeah. And we had, I think our bikes were 90, 1992, 1993. So they had the small fairing that they had back then. And to me, a factory Aprilia was the ones which had the big wide front fairing on them and go into a Noale. Well, oh, even the sight of
0: the bike was would have been
1: intimidating. Oh, <laughs> massive! Like you just can't believe how excited I was then, just to see that that bike sitting there with the shiniest of chrome frames. That, you know how they used to polish the Aprilias. Yeah. Um, which actually later I found out that I was riding. into <laughs> This is going off off subject a little <laughs> bit, but in two fifties they actually. Told us one year to stop polishing the frame because it was a, it was a really old chassis and it was getting too thin. Nothing left. <laughs> <laughs> it was Harada's ninety seven chassis and I think I was riding it in two thousand and five. So anyway, going back to the, <laughs> back to the uh, that first time going to the Aprilia factory at Noale, like I can't put across how at the time that was just such a massive deal to me. The dream for me was to ride an Aprilia, in Grand Prix, Um and. At the time, you only see roses because you're just naive to everything.
0: and Well, you see the bike. It looks uh, great. You hear the bike when they start it up. Yep, yeah, that's the sound of an apredia. Yeah, This thing, uh, it's all singing, all dancing. But unfortunately, then when you get on the track with uh, the other bike, you soon start to realize what's important. What was important in 125 Grand Prix. Horsepower was lacking.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it was... The, the, the initial feeling of being in Grand Prix and having this amazing opportunity to be with Team Matteoni that had previously, or the, the season previous, I, I think had got some top five results with Alex De Angelis. And, you know, on paper, everything was looking great. like This was such a good position to be in. And it all came about because actually, um, you know, Dorna put up some money for, for me to go with Team Matteoni. And it wasn't like, oh, do you want to take this guy from the UK? Uh, and here's some money to go with it. Um, it was like, no, you take this rider, yeah. uh, with the money that we're gonna give you, um, or you lose that grid spot. So, you know, the the it's up to you. You either you either do this or or basically go home. And and so obviously they had no choice. And we only realized at the end of the not at the end of the season, but probably at the middle of the season that that sour taste in the Matteoni team. But never, they never really got over that because they had a, a an Italian rider, I think, who had a big sponsor, probably more than what Dorna was going to give them. Yeah. Um, and everything was lined up for them to, to go racing with more money. But they ended up having to take this guy from the UK who they didn't know, who on paper has done nothing, um, but they were forced into it. And, and for me, at the time, like I said, you're just not so naive to that. I'm there thinking that I've just got this opportunity, the best opportunity in the world. And it slowly started to
0: unravel itself. Um, but it is naivety, isn't it? Because when you're young and you, do, you say you just see you're ever the optimist and you imagine that everybody wants the greater good, it couldn't be more opposite to what you have now with the team structure that you're with now. The fact that you get them guys that whatever you say they believe in you 100 percent mm. that first year in world championship racing you had the complete opposite you had guys that they didn't want you to be involved at all
1: no not at all they the guy was literally just put the rider out there on a bike that's not going to seize you know a probably are quite knife-edge bikes anyway and to get the best out of them you had to be prepared to take that risk and and run them to the limit and you know, they were hard on pistons and they had to be changed every session if you're a factory team and I think my, my piston probably could have done all season. Um, but, you know, the thing was, it was, the bike was just absolute dog because the guy, the boss, Mr. Matteoni, uh, Massimo Matteoni, he didn't care to, to, to let it go at all. It seems crazy to say this. Like, why would why would a team not have the best interests of, of the team or to make the team look good? Why would they not, not try and give the best opportunity to the rider? But, it was just a matter of ease for them at the time, and we. There were so many things during the season. Like I went out for my home Grand Prix on used tyres, um, which is just. You know, it's just it was unheard of then, and it's obviously unheard of now. And there were so many things during the year, and I think by the middle of the year in two thousand and one, you know, the shine of being uh, two thousand two, the shine of being in the World Championship had, had was already wearing off a little bit, and not only that, but the. I think the atmosphere changed from being a kid hanging out at Snetterton with you on messing around with other riders. Like I remember my last British Championship race. It was me, Craig Jones. Uh, I Can't remember if it was you. There was three of us trying to try to stay up all night, and <laughs> and got, we slept in the grandstands at Donington Park. Uh, I think I, I do recall something. Our like end that. of season party was right. Let's see if we can stay up all night. We're going to do it, um, and. <laughs> But that's the the sort of shit that you get up to as that a kid, age. and and that you just you know try and carry on, you know, doing things that way and having a bit of fun with the guys that you're racing against and that you want to beat, but still you know, getting along and being amicable. And then we went to Grand Prix and nobody speaks to anybody. You um like I said about the scrapbook thing that me and my sister used to keep, when all of a sudden, there's Uchi or there's Nobu Ueda or Simone Sander or all these guys that. They were like, even if they hadn't never won a race or been on the podium, they were already heroes to me yeah. because they're they are where I want to be, and the like I said, the shine really went off quickly because nobody wants to talk to you, and you feel like a bit of a spare part there, and the
0: team don't want to put the best effort out there, and. It was but like, it, wow. When you think about that age, uh, <laughs> it's it's almost the equivalent of okay, you're. A kid studying at school, you're sort of 15, 16s, working towards your GCSEs, and then the next year, they just send you to Wall Street. And yeah. you're you're working with these guys that are <laughs> in their so 30th, 30s, because that's what you did. You just went to become a professional right away, yeah. and you still get that kid mentality. How weird is that mm. to be thrown into to, into that environment? Yeah,
1: and that, to me, that goes back as well to how you grow up. And it, for the riders that came up through the the, the Spanish system, it was kind of like they were already used to that they were already used to the way that you deal with other riders that you don't go and hang out with the guys on a on a well at any point during the weekend and i think to a certain extent i think that's actually changed a little bit for the better these days because kids can get on and go and bang bars on a sunday but at that time there was something going on where it was you know it was really serious business and really cutthroat and um and obviously it still is but if you look at even the guys that are in some guys that are in MotoGP the younger generation like if you look at Quattararo and Jack at the minute there that's an example off the top of my head but the the guys that have come through the Red Bull rookies that kind of remain friends and uh, yeah it's not it's a competitive sport it's not about being there being mates on a Sunday but you can do this job both ways you can be an asshole or you can be yeah. a decent person and i that, don't it's that bold really...
0: thing i think that was the mold that they'd set back then and you've got to fit this mold where you've got to be yeah. serious you're not allowed to smile you're not allowed to speak with your rivals mm. and then i'd say valentino rossi was a guy that changed uh, that outlook a lot and then again a guy like mark marquez that's smiling easy easy go lucky and yeah happy go lucky yeah i think they start to realize now that there is no one perfect mold and that doesn't just go for our sport it seems to be all across the board in so many different sports you see that they're starting to realise that Mm. you have to kind of cater to the individual in order to get the best out of them whereas in the past it did seem to be that they set this mould and you've got to
1: fit into that definitely, yeah definitely agree with that yeah it was a a baptism of fire to say the least that 2001 season or 2002 I keep getting years mixed up but um, yeah I think you come out of it a stronger a stronger yeah. person. I remember uh, so many things that stand out from that year. I remember from about the fifth, sixth race when we realised kind of what was going on. It's like, right, what can we do? Duty free in the airport, going to the race, we'll buy a bottle of whiskey because Massimo Matteoni, loves a whiskey. So <laughs> let's get him a whiskey on Thursday. Let's take him a bottle of JD. Team boss, will love it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, right, tried that did that for several races 40 quid a time <laughs> and it, that wasn't getting us anywhere um and it got to a point at the malaysian grand prix where uh them two straights of malaysia and in that heat you know it's, you need every horsepower that you can get and uh the thing was just a dog and the, the default at that time was to blame me for being a bit of a taller rider and being non-aerodynamic which maybe there's a couple of k an hour in it but not fifteen, twenty. 20. <laughs> um, so my dad had was at wit's end with it and he was I remember he had tried load of different ways, tried the amicable route, tried to push a little bit, um, and then the final straw was to come to me, he was like, Give me the nod and I will nut him. <laughs> He's got a headbutt him. <laughs> so yeah, Pete was up for, for headbutting him, he was absolutely seething and you know, luckily we managed to talk him out of it. Um, but it's just ultimate frustration for him as well and f- for me at the time i just kind of going with the flow and at 15 years old it's you know it is what it is and not getting too, trying not to get too frustrated with it and you know to a certain extent i think at that point also not believing that i deserve Anand. to be there and maybe going well yeah well the bike is a bit slow but maybe i'm you know not meant to be here i uh, had a couple of okay rides during the season um, which conveniently were when I had no teammate because yeah <laughs> they needed a result so I didn't have a teammate in in Barcelona and uh, in Donington race I know oh, for Donington race they gave me the second hand tires but the engine was actually going good <laughs> so I managed to do okay there and uh And, yeah, for the rest of the season, it was just, you know, a a bit of a write-off and, you know, baptism of fire, as said, and and, one of those years where he's just
0: like, well, I can't wait to finish this, and and what does the future hold? And it's clear that Marioni only saw that as a one-year thing. This was just easy in, easy out. And I know at the end of that year, then, you were striving to keep your World Championship career alive, and lo and behold... At the end of that year, then you end up doing the, the final two rounds of the Spanish Championship there. <laughs> and uh, that was the. I'd started racing then, and that was where our careers and first crossed paths. I think that's the one and only time that we were teammates then for the TSR, Technical Sports Racing Team, along with uh, Ian Edwards. They were running me in the British Championship uh, that year. And uh, then they also had a, a team in the World Championship, and then they were looking at putting you on the bike for the following year. So I remember that week that we did. Um, travel in Valencia and Hereth. that's probably one of the best uh, weeks in, <laughs> in my life it was so much fun because we were completely carefree, we were riding bikes and having fun on the weekends but a big part of our focus, we were so young was still on GP500, <laughs> computer game I remember where one of the races was it in, yeah it was Valencia where compared to now where we're so organised, we know our wake up time, we know what time we're going to have breakfast what time we leave the hotel, get to the guys to speak to the crew before the start of the session As kids then, whatever we had looked at the time, we had understood that that was the the time for the race where the pit lane opened. But that was actually the time uh, that the race was to start. So you and I were sat playing (laughs) GP500, the computer game, in our clothes, pretty much as the pit lane was about to open. And Ian Edwards, the team manager, came in and shouted at us, guys, get your leathers on, get your kit on, we got to go. I remember rushing, putting my kit on. And i just made it out pit lane with uh, less than 30 seconds to go. And I hadn't even time to do up my helmet. I did the warm-up lap with my (laughs) helmet strapped loose. I had to go down pit lane. That's how chaotic and disorganized I was then. And I cannot even imagine doing that nowadays. That's the sort of stuff that I would have a nightmare about nowadays. It's like one of those... um, Things that you, you, Worst case scenario, Yeah. we were actually living it back then. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I remember the diet for the week pretty much consisted of McDonald's, wasn't it? it yeah, was... it was McDonald's, that's all we ate,
0: and we were we didn't know how to cook even then. I didn't yeah. um, cook for myself at home. I think you and I tried to do the good thing and look out for the mechanics. I remember you and I trying to make like a bacon egg sandwich or something <laughs> for the mechanics and <laughs> eggs everywhere, making an absolute mess. Maybe they took it out of pity and then chucked it straight in the bin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was uh, so f- much fun those um, couple of rounds that we had, but crazy when you think back about how we were living at that stage, and that was one of my first experiences away from home without parents, and uh, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I was. I remember that as well. It
1: was a lot of fun that week. GP five hundred being the standout. It was you know, probably took it more serious than what we did the actual racing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember um, that as well. Being at the end of two thousand and two, being in that limbo situation of. Am I going to carry on in one two five or being, you know, growing every every month quite a lot? You know, should I start looking at at two fifty and yeah? I we were actually looking at one two five, trying to get there with the right, the right situation, and and that was TSR at the time. We thought that they could maybe given a good opportunity, but as it turned out for me, it, it went the two fifty route for, well, after, pretty much after that that bender that we had
0: in uh, in Hereth and Valencia. <laughs> I do remember at that stage that you were seen to be very tall for a 125 and they were obsessed with height and weight that was such a big thing so um, that's why maybe a big part of the reason why you were steered towards 250 Grand Prix and you really did serve your time there you did so many years where you worked hard made your way up through the ranks and was it by the end of your second year in 250 Grand Prix you were making waves you were starting to show that you had it and uh Really, when you look at it, it should have been a factory. Or probably you're sitting there waiting, but unfortunately it's not just as easy as that.
1: No, yeah, it was uh, definitely... It was the right step, I think, from 125 to go to 250 in 2003. For me, I was actually... I wanted to stay 125. Um, and 250 seemed a bit intimidating. I'd been in Grand Prix for a year, did nothing. was still intimidated by everything that was going on. So it just seemed like one step further out of my depth. Um but the great thing about that was is that we had the support of Dorna again um, and they placed me with, uh, at the time it was Aprilia, a Germany, which was actually a really great team with the right people in, in the team. So from the mechanics to the team manager, a guy called Dieter Stappert, yeah. uh, an Austrian guy who had a lot of experience in firstly Formula One as a journalist and, and then came through and various team management roles and, and actually took Jeremy Williams and Ralph Waldman to, to, to Grand Prix w- wins and um, so it was a, it was a really good situation to fall into from from the terrible 2000 and or first year in Grand Prix to get into that situation where the people that wanted to help you exactly yeah the people that are there for the right reasons maybe not with the best bike or the best budget. Or whatever, but they're there for the right reason to give the rider the best bit of kit that they can, and um, I actually had what three, three years there with Aprilia uh, Germany. So we really had a good relationship with with Dieter. He he put together a really good team, um, and the progression was was consistent. It was it was decent from the beginning. I f- felt like I got on with two fifty quite well initially. Um, I think I got points in my. S- second Grand Prix uh, in in South Africa Um, and then just slowly improved and I think that was sort of the building blocks of uh, moving towards hopefully getting towards a factory bike over the years of 2003, 2004 and then finally with Aprilia Germany was 2005 um, where we ended up getting I think a fifth then a sixth at the end of the year, uh, no two two fifths. I think it was uh, one in one in uh, Phillip Island, and then the last one in Valencia, and I. It was a weird one because it just sort of happened, and yeah, we were battling for top privateer all the time. There was me, uh, Alex De Bon, uh, uh, Sylvain Gintoli, and several other guys who were on like real privateer bikes, um, and. The, the The objective every weekend was to be the best of the rest. You're never going to fight with the factory bikes. Um, and I think that that's something that these days you know, maybe isn't appreciated as... Not that it should be appreciated, but like that kids maybe don't understand actually how it was back then. So when yeah. you raced in 250, what was it,
0: 2007? Yeah, I've, the years that you did in 250 Grand Prix, I pretty much followed you then after that, 2007, 2008. Yeah. And so weird to... to be in that championship at that time so things have changed so much in 10 years where the machinery mm. is really close I think uh, 125 and 250 Grand Prix racing was in such a mess then. Yeah. we watched it on TV the years before we'd been there and we saw just glitz and glam That's and then sure. once we arrived we realised some of these bikes in the lower half of the field were just thrown together I, yeah. like you said you were riding an old chassis that couldn't be buffed anymore otherwise yeah. uh, the thing was going to run out of material I was riding in 2008 in 250 Grand Prix on A chassis that was from I think 1998, so it was 10 years old, yeah. And wow. even the uh, it was bent, you know, the front it's probably my old one, <laughs> yeah. Could have been <laughs> your old one. Huh? Uh, Randy Dupinier had raced it one year, Oof. the front and rear wheel were actually out of line. it was definitely bent, <laughs> it was bent, and we didn't know it at the time, so yeah. Uh, like you said, maybe it isn't well known because that stage it was such a gulf between the front of the field and the back of the field because in a straight line you could have been losing 25 kilometers per hour. That's what I was losing yeah. whenever I was in the 250 Grand Prix. I remember Alvaro <laughs> Bautista man past me and scaring the absolute bejesus <laughs> out of me because it was like uh, he w- he had more CC than me because the thing was that much faster. So it's really in such a good place right now with Moto3 and Moto2. Yeah. Donna have done a fantastic job with that. That allows kids the chance to go on a fight and that's why you see these trains of 15 riders together that yeah. wouldn't have happened when we were there because no. the bike that was in 15th place hadn't a hope in the hell of no. getting anywhere near that because the deficit the in engine performance and all the rest was maybe a couple of seconds
1: yeah and not only engine performance i remember in i think it was about the last round of the year in uh, maybe 2004 2005 in in valencia and I went to Dunlop and I used to be a, quite proactive about checking the tires for the weekend and, and talking with the guys from from Dunlop who were all from Birmingham uh, and you know, I had quite a good relationship with them and I, I used to go there on a Thursday to get their, get their feedback on the tires and what we have for the weekend and everything and my list was always pretty simple. It was, if I remember well, maybe a couple of different compounds of front and maybe two or three rears um, and... Uh, the guy from Dunlop I won't name him just in case he gets in hot water <laughs> this many years on but uh, he passed me the tyre the sheet for the weekend and I looked at it in my hands and kind of blinked a few times and, and was trying to get through it like, read it and there was all these numbers and different numbers and there was like seven fronts and eight rears or something like that it was just a, a massive massive amount of tyres insane and I was where'd you start with this then and then he peered over and and looked at it and ripped it straight back out of my hands and and then I saw at the top it said a divisiosa so it was I actually had Dobby's tire sheet given to me and I had a little scan over it and it pretty much blew my mind because it wasn't it wasn't like a tire sheet that I was used to and the numbers were completely different and the quantities were completely different and at the time it wasn't just about the factory bike but the factory teams had the had the factory tires and back in that same weekend i remember on on sunday morning after morning warm-up so i'd done every session of the whole weekend on a certain tire and and or a certain couple of tires and figured out what i wanted to use for the race and then don't come and they say we've got one tire for you for the race <laughs> and expect a thanks for it which at the time you're super grateful because you know that it's better than what you're running but now when you're thinking about it how do you set up for a different tyre or how do you get used to a different tyre because now knowing what you know, the differences that just a little bit of compound makes or a little bit of construction makes that how are you supposed to go into a race blind and pull out a result when you've just got given this tyre an hour before the race and it's just goes on the racks gets thrown in the bike and you just go on their word that it's a better one Um, and I'm pretty sure they would never have given a worse one and it was just that sort of.
0: That's just what used to happen. It was normal, and oh wait, I remember thinking that was normal as well. We knew that the yeah the guys at the front are on better tires, and maybe if I get better results, then I might step up into yeah. that level and be given that selection of the tires. That was so crazy. That's yeah. why motorsport is in such a great place right now. <laughs> yes, Probably is. the same in Formula One with the control tires there in the MotoGP GP control rider control tires. Yeah. Same in World Superbike Championship. So now things are a lot more equal and I think it gives us good opportunities. Unfortunately, back then, some of the team levels weren't very good mm-hmm. in 125 and 250 Grand Prix. Even I was lucky whenever I was riding 250 Grand Prix that the Olins technician for the Suzuki Grand Prix team happened to be from Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. The guy, Graham Irvine, that lived down the road from me. So he just commended into the guys and offered the guys to service the suspension FOC free of charge. Of course, the team weren't going to turn down that. That would be great. And uh, Graham thought that he was just in a standard service. I and mean, yeah, Opened up the forks, tried to tip them upside down, nothing came out. I realised that the oil was like tar. Wow. They'd been sitting there probably in a storage room for I don't know how many years. They came years. with that 98 chassis. Yeah, probably <laughs> <laughs> they had been in the storage room with the 1998 <laughs> chassis just as a, a solid unit. That's the kind of level we were operating with back then. And uh, I think nowadays people understand the importance of the package underneath. Mm. But whenever you set your 250 gram pre-bag against uh, be it Jorge Lorenzo's or whoever was winning at that stage they looked pretty similar that's the fragment yeah. thing and that's uh, to the on trend I like we were talking about before people don't know and if the guy who was winning the championship and was world champion was to hop on your bike he he uh, may even have finished behind you so it was so hard to understand riders levels at that stage and yeah. I even like I was a friend of yours then and I didn't know your level yeah because I didn't know what was going on then and whenever you're there you're kind of thinking maybe people do know what's going on but nobody does it's no. probably only you do and that's something that I was told as a young rider which was complete bullshit and I would tell any young rider now uh, is not to believe it They I was always told now don't worry just keep riding your, your ass off the people that need to know they know mm-hmm. that your bike isn't up to scratch that was bullshit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it wasn't the case people just looked and said eh, 14th position he finished 45 seconds behind the yeah. race winner that's, that's sort of his level yeah yeah, oh, he's from the UK. Yeah, that's Yeah, they're they're not they're not there's no fast riders from there. Yeah, he's not exactly. Spanish or Italian. So yeah. it was it probably is what, what made us as yeah. riders, but um you had a strange old career path after them, which must have been tough because you had to leave two hundred fifty Grand Prix after fighting for so long to try and hang on mm. and headed towards America then. And that yeah. was something nobody had been doing at that stage
1: yeah so the, the the last part of well the kind of the last good results in 250 were like i just spoke about with them that result of valencia and phillip island and a couple of top fives on a on a privateer bike with with a good gap between myself and the other privateer riders i think i was racing with tony Elias, and fonzi nieto there was uh poggiali who had kind of lost his way a little bit at the time and i had those guys behind me and i was like right well if i don't get a factory bike now then what's when are you going to get one Um yeah. And there's a lot of chat about sort of wrong passport and what. And I've never liked to use that as an excuse. Like, I feel like if your results are good enough, then it's, it shouldn't be about the passport. But maybe that's a bit of naivety as well, because I know now that it is, it definitely plays a part. Maybe it's not everything, but it's definitely an ingredient there. And um, and then, yeah, so at the end of 2005 with those strong results, um, the, the ride never came. I was supposed to be on a, fac- a semi-factory uh, what they called the LE the 250 LE for 2006 Um, and I signed with team Campatella to go, which were a very very good privateer team at the time Um, and they still exist in a different form, I think they're the the speed up team with um, Navarro and uh, Di Gian Antonio this year so um, basically still exist and they were a really good team and um, had a lot of sort of kudos behind them as a as the privateer team so it was really exciting and you know, semi-factory bike and everything like that was like okay it's not a factory but this bike is going to be it's it's 90% of what you'll get in a factory bike so uh, we were thinking 2006 is the one that's the, the next stepping stone um, and one thing led to another the sponsor didn't come up it wasn't my sponsor it was the team sponsor it was I think it was bullshit from the start it was I don't know how it works sometimes but it never never materialised no money got paid and I was out of the paddock in three or four races I, uh, the first three races were a cobbled together bike of spare parts that Campadella had um, and then the fourth fifth race I think after Le Mans was maybe my my last race um, and that was up so I, I did a couple of wild cards towards the end of the season on sort of uh, private Hondas and and what but it was that was the end of the Grand
0: Prix dream, really. Um, yeah, it must have felt like just dreams crushed because there was so many years put into trying to crack through and well, you are still pretty young, but it must have felt like that's it. Yeah. My World Championship career is over.
1: Yeah, and I think if that was now, I would maybe take it to heart a bit more. But at the time, I was a bit more... It was d- maybe not processing it enough of what it, what it... Could mean I was sort of like, well, you know, it's just not happened. So if it's not happened, it's it's just not happened. <laughs> and what what more can you do? And um, I was back. I remember back in uh, Kinsham at the go kart track, washing a cart, I think on the bridge. I'd been helping Dad out and helping the go karts for the summer and um, you know just not really working as such. It was just you know, doing. And the only thing I really knew how to help out, I was sort of doing that and, and hoping that an opportunity would come sooner rather than later. I think I tested a 600 at, at Silverstone once and yeah. um, nothing really came of it. And yeah, it was, looking back on it now, that could have quite easily have been it. And I remember I got into cycling quite a lot at that time and in 2005 and I started cycling quite a lot and would go and beat myself up quite regularly on the bike and, and take out a little bit of that. What wasn't happening on the racing side of it, I would take out on the bicycle a bit. And I, I remember thinking, well, I don't need an engine, I don't need factory tyres on a bicycle, so I'll go and do that. Yeah. And there was enough little things, like like I said, in with, a, with the wildcard at Donington... And the wild card at Valencia on these Hondas where it was just sort of keeping me in, in, the, um, in, in the motorbike scene. And so it was one of those things where I thought, well, if it doesn't work out, I'm going to go cycling. I'm going to make a, make a good, good go mm-hmm. of it. And yeah, I thought I'll, you know, I was really sort of, I, I fell in love a little bit with cycling at the time. And I thought, yeah, this is this is really cool. I know better now. <laughs> Six hours on a bicycle a day is a really hard way to live <laughs> riding motorbikes is way better but uh, at the time it seemed quite glamorous compared to the
0: situation where I was in because maybe because of what had went on it yeah was maybe five six years and we're championship seeing that the machinery was so important whereas in cycling uh, it's all about the, the rider yeah yeah and I never did anything apart from a few local races and time trials
1: and never dabbled on the Epo <laughs> never dabbled on the Epo or <laughs> Well, not that I can remember, but oh, you know those <laughs> memories are vague. <laughs> but um, yeah, there was so at the time it was like well uh, I I wasn't scared to try a different route, but at the time I was at the same time I was still hanging on to maybe what what could be, and I remember going back to washing the cart, washing the carts at Kincham, and my phone rang or the house phone rang, and it was Jeremy Williams, uh, and I don't think I've ever actually thanked Jeremy for this. And I'm not sure if he'll even remember, but hopefully he's listened to his podcast and he'll remember. But he, he had been doing a few races in America that year. Um, and he said, look, there's this guy in New York, really passionate guy. He's got a, an R6 that he's running in in um, AMA. It's in this former extreme championship or this super sport championship. Um, and he's interested in giving you a run for the last couple of races. Are you interested? And at the time, there's and probably still, especially in the Grand Prix paddock, paddock, but there's a certain stigma attached. I think with going to America to race because especially at the time it was kind of like you see Milladin and Hodgson have gone over there and do Hamill and Bostrom and all these names from yesteryear. Yeah, that's that's the retirement plan. We'll go. Yeah. We'll go to AMA. So th- and that was my initial thoughts, which was. I haven't even got a ride. Why am I thinking about retiring? For eighteen? Like, well, yeah, eighteen years old. <laughs> but it was it, not about retiring. But it was about like, well, AMA is not on the radar. Uh, BSB, yes. Back to world championship, obviously yes, but AMA is really not on the radar. And then I remember getting on the phone to Jeremy and and sort of talking it through with my parents and, and being like, well, what's what's the other options at the minute. There are none. Yeah. There are literally none. So go over there, see how it goes, and you never know. We'll, we'll see how it pans out with, with no real idea about you know, anything in America. I didn't have a clue about tracks, about riders. Uh, everything was new to me. These champions, Jamie Hacking and Josh Hayes and these guys who have been dominating the scene for years. I'm like, well, who's this guy? But if that was a Grand Prix rider, I'd like, wow kazuto sakata oh wow japanese legend from the last 10 years of my life i've been looking up to these guys so just went over there and that was little did i know at the time that that was a
0: the catalyst to start maybe say the second part of my career yeah that revitalized your career didn't it? and that's i always wondered how you ended up in AMA. i'd I'd never asked you that actually so it seemed like such a strange move at that time and you went and did it and wow, i really did revitalize your career them years uh, that you spent there
1: yeah, so, and that was I did that race at Mid-Ohio and it was with a team called um, Celtic Racing with uh, the team manager, owner, everything, truck driver, you yeah. name it uh, was a guy called Barry Barry Gilson and yeah, Irishman Irishman, yeah who moved over to, to New York back a long time ago I can't exactly remember when but he's been in, based in America for years um, and super passionate guy um, you know, the sort of guy that you want Running a team, um, you know, doesn't didn't have an endless budget, didn't have you know factory material, but put together the best outfit that he could, which was a really good outfit, um, and put a good bike on the track, and, and it was at the end of two thousand and six, I did uh, did a race at Mid Ohio for him, and it went it went well. I think I got fourth in the Formula Extreme race and maybe sixth or seventh in Super Sport, which was which was a really solid first weekend on a four stroke yeah. right, race weekend um and yeah just a lot of things sort of ignited I think the love of racing again for you know from the atmosphere to the results to the people that I was around you know good people putting the best effort they can on the track with you know no nothing in between you then uh, nothing between that and getting a result so to me that was that kick-started things again and and that then led to 2007 doing another full year with Barry, uh, signed with, with Celtic again, which I guess, like, being a pre-pro, pre-pro podcast, yeah, up till this point, there was not a penny made out of racing in you know, going from here to there. Um, every I did get a little bit of money from, I think, Nolan Helmets when I started in, or Vimar, actually, the first year in 2002, and then Nolan Helmets, which actually looking back was... I don't remember the amount it was, but it was. I remember at the time it was actually reasonable money yeah. just just to wear a helmet and Grand Prix, which was quite mind-blowing for me. But um, that obviously went on travel for myself, my dad. And that was, you know, as a family, my mum and dad were were out of pocket. Um, in all those years of Grand Prix racing, we were you know, substantially out of pocket. But this was the first year, actually, there was a salary coming my way to go and race in America. Not a lot, but it was, you know, a lot better than what I have been used to. I'm working at Kinsham, so um, yeah. Then two thousand seven, that was the
0: the first full year in in AMA. So I remember tuning in actually that year in two thousand and seven to watch the MotoGP GP at Laguna Seca, mm-hmm. and so the type with the time difference that meant that I was watching it in the evening time back in Ireland, and. Uh, in into Eurosport and they're scanning around. they are sort of two minutes to go before the session, they go into the Pramac Ducati garage and it kind of starts to zoom in on uh, Alex Hoffman, sat there and his leathers, and then it zooms in closer, number 66 of Alex Hoffman's bike. And then I realised that's not Alex Hoffman, sat there. <laughs> There's Chaz. I remember he was kind of waving and like shrugging, going, Yeah, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Neither I, did I. I it was, that was uh, so surreal. <laughs> So how did that uh, come on by? That, that was uh, a strange old turn of events.
1: It's just, yeah, one of those things at the time where I was there racing uh, AMA, obviously, which was run alongside the GP for that weekend at Laguna, uh, and it was in July, I think, so about midway through the, the AMA calendar, and uh, I knew a few people in the GP paddock, but honestly, in, in uh, the, the GP teams, in OGP, didn't know anybody, generally, nobody at all. And Alex got injured, I think it was FP1. Um, he was taken out at the top of the corkscrew by Sylvan, I think yeah, it was. All yeah, Silvan, um, Yeah. And broke his hand or wrist or something Alex did. And then, uh, so I was getting ready to go out for our first practice in, in AMA Supersport in the afternoon. Um, and then all of a sudden I think it was the Lewis Dan team, um, came yeah. to our, our pit garage, uh, along with Livio Super to ask if I was available and <laughs> Barry being Barry was, and the, the, the beauty of not being in a factory team was Barry was like, ah, you're fucking right. He's <laughs> like, get on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow. Uh, I'm about to go and ride a MotoGP bike I've never done Lapa Laguna yet um, and it was only
0: like an hour or something before the session it, was, wasn't it? Yeah. It, must, it had to be pretty quick because it was free practice one where Alex Hoffman got injured yeah. and then they came and looked for you between the sessions yeah so they yeah came and uh, they they went to Ben
1: Bostrom first but Ben was in a contract I think with either Yamaha or Honda that year um, because obviously Ben did really good in, in Superbike and he was a name I think Livio knew him really well from, from back then in Ducati and so he was the obvious go-to, and then they floated it with a few other named riders like the Hodgson's and, and whoever, but there was literally nobody that could do it, because they all had contracts and you know, personal commitments in the in AMA, and they couldn't make it happen. So I, I was a bit down the pecking order, but it, it came my way, and yeah, next thing I knew, I'm in Hoffman's Leathers, and getting ready to, to go out for what at the time was free practice too. Um, so you can only imagine how intimidating that was, um, you know, riding a GP bike, a uh, GP bike on Bridgestones where, you know, you hear everything about it. at the time Bridgestones were pretty savage for, for cold or, you know, off-throttle cold tyre high sides. Um, never seen Laguna before. I think I rode a few laps on my bicycle the day before. Um, and there was just so much going on where it was pretty overwhelming and i remember going out on track and i think it was my second lap coming out of turn four uh no sorry turn three the first right hander on the track the first person that comes by me is rossi and somebody actually took a, f- a photo of it and i never forget that because it's just one of those like pinch yourself moments where you're just like what is happening here <laughs> what has what has gone on well this is happening and then by Sunday, it just it went really good. Like the whole weekend and the standout for me that weekend was just how much grip there was. It was ridiculous. The Bridgestones were, had so much grip. It was my first time riding a bike with, with traction control as well. So I was just basically absorbing all the information from the engineers who were going, you pretty much can high side this bike. You yeah. know that? <laughs> yeah. Are you sure? And I'm like, yeah. No, we, we trust in the system a lot. Uh, right okay challenge accepted so i was just not really much feeling for the bike but getting it round there okay and just whacking the throttle everywhere but the grip was so so good i think it had been resurfaced not that long before the bridgestone tires at the time were seemingly a perfect match for that track and it went really good and come the end of the race on sunday i think my best lap was just within three tenths of rossi's best lap and towards the end of the race i put together some good laps which were sort of top 10 pace and that really pricked up the uh, the ears of um of livio and i think it also
0: created a little bit
1: of like
0: interest back in europe as well because yeah it was pretty big um i remember how the media reacted to it because even for me uh I think that moment, whenever I was watching you, I realized, wow, Chaz really has got it. And you don't forget that then, Mm. because how can you judge what you were riding in 250 Grand Prix before? Because um, nobody knows what level the bike is, only you. Mm. I remember watching that weekend and seeing that Casey Stoner was the only guy that was able to ride a Ducati and Bridgestones at that stage, and you were so quick. Mm. And like you said, being within three-tenths of a second of Valentino Rossi. And that's when I realized, okay, Chaz has got it. Mm. Yeah, it was was pivotal.
1: It was as much a surprise to me as well because you, know, you just don't expect that sort of after so many years of shit. Then you don't expect to, to be that close to, to be that close at all. You know, if I'd have finished the, the weekend a couple of seconds off the pace, I, that would have been yeah. you know about where I'd have expected to be. Well, but
0: well, if you think about what well, you were doing two fifty Grand Prix, it was maybe two seconds a lap off. it yeah. could have been, and then well, sometimes more. Yeah, yeah, often more. It could have been two, three seconds per lap. Yeah. And then you go on to MotoGP and you go, hang on a second. And you almost can't work it out in your head. You go, right, let me get this straight. I'm mm. now at the pinnacle of racing. I'm only 0.3 seconds behind Valentino Rossi. Yeah. It's confusing for us watching and almost confusing for you <laughs> riding the bike too. makes no sense whatsoever.
1: But yeah, it was yeah quite a, a crazy weekend. And I remember speaking with my parents after it. And they were just like, oh, it was it's been unbelievable and that, yeah there was that sort of then I think put me a little bit back in the shop window for well it actually did put me in the shop window for finally getting back to world supersport two years after that I was finally getting to world supersport back yeah. into world championship two years after that but I also got offered off the back of that ride um, I did then Malaysia race I did Philip Island race uh, and I was on the way to doing Valencia race but I was testing that traction control and managed to high side the okay, thing yeah. twice That's right. <laughs> um, so yeah at least I proved them wrong before the end of the year that you can high side it you showed them <laughs> I showed them yeah <laughs> nice bit of cold temperature at, uh, at Valencia to put things straight um, but yeah anyway with all that I got offered a, a testing contract to be the test rider for Bridgestone um, for 2008 for Ducati Bridgestone, when they had the prop, the the internal test team for Bridgestone within Ducati, so and that came from Livio because uh, he put things together, and I think was quite happy with how things went in you know, the few races that I did do and the the situation situation as a whole. So he p- put that together, and yeah, I think much to his surprise that I turned that down, um, a factory testing contract with. With, um, with Ducati, with Bridgestone, um, I think he really wasn't expecting a no. But to me, having reignited a bit of a love for racing again in just those 12 months that I'd gone to AMA and done the GP race at, at Laguna, I wasn't ready to go into a testing role. And I'm like, no, I want st- to stick at this racing and I want to keep in a shop window of some sort and honestly I don't know if it was the right decision didn't know if it was the right decision at the time and I still don't know if it was the right decision now but overall the way things have worked out I think maybe I've got a better story
0: to tell about it well that's that's why I wanted to go through all those years I appreciate you taking the time to to go through um, from when you first went world championship and gone through those 250 years into America and you're talking about 2008 there and getting offered a factory testing contract but you were born in 1988 so we only got we've only gotten to when you were 20 years old there was Mm. so much that happened in that period and I can totally understand why you didn't want to become a test rider you still wanted to to race and that's, that's only natural and you had such a different path to well, your main career rival is, is Johnny Ray, uh, who you've been fighting with the World Superbike Championship for so many years. Mm. And Johnny uh, Ray's path was much more conventional. British Championship in 125, British Super Sport, British Superbike, up, up to World Super Sport and mm. World Superbike. It's been pretty conventional. Yours, yeah. you, couldn't, uh, you couldn't actually write that, you couldn't um, put that path together. That's just not normal.
1: No, definitely not all roses either along the way you just you you go there with the biggest dreams in the world and you think it's just going to be that natural progression of of going through you know fighting your way to the top of each championship and that's what you hope for when you come from super team but actually the reality of it especially in my case was was so much different to that and I think for me it's it's hard to say but I think it's actually if you have that progression where you start this is what i said earlier speaking earlier where if you start with the right opportunity you and you've got some talent and you can sort of make it happen then you'll probably end with the right opportunity but trying to start with a subpar opportunity and then creating the opportunities for yourself later on is a that's a much harder way to do it and you know yourself you've you've tried to do you know and admirably make that jump to grand Prix and to to prove you know, what you can do but there's always it's never the full package there and that can start i think way in advance of what people think they think they just see the end product of you you know scratching around in MotoGP for a result but you know that can start from 250s because you know, you're, you never get the right opportunity from the beginning <laughs> so you're already kind of cast as a bit of you know it's just not you're not in the right situation from the beginning so yeah and i think it's it's cool to come full circle and uh, right now we're in good situations for for next year like i have another year of being a factory ducati rider again and you have a a factory bmw contract and yeah we have good stories to tell in the end which i think is is half the fun of it in hopefully a lot of years we'll be able to reminisce and and talk about you know all this all the shit that we put up with pretty much (laughs) so yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah, we some of the steps in our career did follow each other. It wasn't conventional. Yeah. And the one thing that I would look back and advise any kid, um, a bit, we touched on it before, I said about what I was told. Yeah, don't worry. The right eyes are watching and they know. Like I said, complete bullshit. What I would say to a younger Eugene looking back would be, whatever step you make, make sure that it's on a bike that you can win with. Mm. So this whole thing of like maybe finish in 10th position on a 15th place bike and somebody knows that you're exceeding the expectations of that bike, that's complete crap. I think uh, the best advice you can probably give is whatever step you make, make sure that it's on a bike that can win. That's the only way to kind of proceed. And okay, you can't always do that whenever you're trying to go to MotoGP, the top class, because not everybody gets the chance to do that. But if you're stepping through national championships, uh, be in America and U K and the lesser categories, the Moto Threes, Moto Twos, World Super Sport, try and get on a bike that allows you to to show what you're capable of, because um, the TV cameras only show the guys at the front. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if it says uh, Davies twelfth, Laverty thirteenth. <laughs> Nobody cares. You got to be at the front uh, to be making an impression and get the na- next opportunity. Yeah, that's
1: I remember actually in uh, one of the guys who's ended up being a, a good friend in in AMA Josh Hayes a multiple champion in AMA I remember telling him once in, in America about you know a few problems genuine problems that had happened during the weekend genuine things that had gone wrong and he was just like you know what when people watch the TV nobody cares <laughs> yeah and as much as you don't want to hear it it's bang on like no nobody cares they just look at the end result and the story yeah there's a story there there's a reason to why things Maybe didn't go so well that weekend, but the end result is the most important one. And like you said, to be, I think you've got to be, put yourself in that shop window, whether it's maybe not getting ahead of yourself and trying to get onto, getting to maybe, say, Superbike before you've won a Supersport Championship, but fighting it out for a Supersport Championship and then making that step to Superbike in the right situation. It's so important. And yeah. being a, And I think it's actually good for the head. Well it is definitely good for the head because you're always in that mindset of like, "Well, I'm fighting for a championship here, and that automatically is that stimulation that you need to to lay out on the line on a sunday to and keep yourself there and then and then you fight for the championship that year, then the, you get the good contract for the next year and then you so on and so forth where i don't I think a lot of people that we race against can can kind of speak like that because they've had they've had you know, good opportunities from day one where that, you know, fantastic riders not taking nothing away from, from a lot of the guys who race against, but they have had these opportunities where kind of creates a boring story, but it's, it's been really consistent for them. They've been at the, they've been on the good bikes and they've done really well every year. And it's been that natural progression to the top of world championship and job done. But then we've scratched around and there's other riders as well who are super talented which have had it harder than us as well. Yeah. So you know, I feel like we're middle of the road, but there's people who got it had it easier than us, and people who have had it harder than us. And yeah, that's
0: a cruel sport. So. Yeah, there's that moment in everybody's career. I think yours was around that uh, mid two thousands when you're left without anything, and then I could have been at the end of two thousand eight, and you could have been left without a ride as well. Mm. But then once you get on the right path, I think World Supersport was. Uh, definitely a catalyst for both of us then I never won the championship finish runner up twice you became world super sport champion in 2011 and uh, haven't looked back pretty much won a race every year since then so once you're winning you just keep on winning yeah. yeah so we'll wrap it up there um, thank you for your time it's been uh, good Cutting back the years even remembering those funny little stories of us playing playstation when that's all we really cared about yeah. now we reached to the top words that and uh, long may it continue
1: yeah a lot of good stories and enjoyed
0: that myself
1: so it's cool to cool to reminisce and yeah hopefully long may it continue indeed
0: thanks Jazz. see ya